You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 48 of the Pimpcron Warhammer podcast. In case you didn't already know and you accidentally clicked the wrong podcast, guess what? You're stuck legally. If you no, 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 legally, if you click on a podcast, you have to listen to the entire episode. I don't care if you're a 75 year old grandmother and you thought this was the popcorn pop- podcast. Uh, I don't care. You're listening to this shit right now, Fran. Okay. Gwyneth, Ruth, Betty. Anyway, what are we talking about here? Uh, Let's get off the topic of hot grandmas. We have a lot to talk to you about tonight. We have a Tesseract mailbox featuring a... Oh my god. A Patreon patron named Grendel. And he is one badass motherfucker. And he wants to discuss some of the things in our last episode and you know what um up ahead of him i had an email from uh two different u.s presidents i had a voicemail from the quaker oats guy and can you tell when i just bullshit things can you can you tell because i have like that second i have like that second pause where i'm like oh and the Quaker Arts guy, and anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, so all these people were in front of him, and you know, Grendel was like, "Listen, okay, pimp, uh, you better read my article right now, or I'm gonna bust your lip." And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, Grendel, I thought we were friends." And Grendel's like, "Shut up, shut up, bitch." So that didn't really happen, but I like to think it did. Anyway, he wants to discuss a bunch of things, including, you know, I'm not even going to tell you. I'm not even going to tell you. You're going to listen. You're going to listen. You're going to like it, Ethel. Uh, Man, I am in a weird mood tonight. It's probably, you know what? It's probably exhaustion. That's right. Uh, Red Bull and four cups of coffee. And guess what? I'm still tired. So, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I'm also trying a new segment called Storytime with Pimpcron, and this may not interest you at all, and if it doesn't, you can eat shit! No, no, I'm sorry, that I didn't mean that. Uh, it's Storytime with Pimpcron, and I like to kind of experiment with some different segments once in a while and see how they fit. If you guys like them, please let me know. If you don't, you can eat shit. No, no, I'm sorry. Let me know that too, Okay. Uh, anyway, and basically what we're going to be discussing is each week or whenever it strikes my fancy, I like my fancy being striked, I'm going to pick a short story or a unit entry or a battle or something from 40k Age of Sigmar or Warhammer Fantasy Battles, and I'm going to talk about it. As long as you guys give me some nice feedback and say that you like it, then we're going to keep doing it. If you say you don't like it, then you can eat shit. No, 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 no. You can let me know that too. And I will not do it anymore. (laughs) So this week is about the Tomb Kings and it's the Screaming Skull Catapult. And I got to tell you right now, if you don't know what that is, you're in for a trip because that is some effed up stuff in that background story of that. 
And finally, we have the Real Talk with the Pimpcron tactics for choosing a custom color scheme for your custom chapter in a custom way. Because I like hot rod customs. That's, that's not funny at all. I don't, you know, I really apologize for that. I don't usually like to put out apologies, but that was bad. That was real bad. Uh, so I actually have been asked this a couple different times for different people because I have every single one of my like 14 or 15 armies have uh, custom color schemes except for one. And, you know, I like doing it. I like your army standing out differently. I like it looking different. I like all of that. And I think you do too. I think deep down, all you Ultramarines players, you're a little sad that you, you picked the Boy Scouts. You're a little bit sad. I know you are. Oh my god. Alright, what has been going on with me? Uh, I am literally neck deep in my summer season, and I'm not going to sit here and bitch about that. So let's just carry on. I am deliriously tired at this juncture. And my article this week was a little goofy, and it's because I was tired. And this is a little goofy, because I'm tired. So what have I been doing in hobby progress? Well, I've been painting some Tomb Kings. That's right, painting more Tomb Kings. Uh, I'm really digging that uh, pink, white, and blue color scheme. So I have, um, I've had a bunch of models that, you know, I have this problem where I buy stuff, and then I immediately lose interest in it. And um, like, God, probably eight months ago, I bought some Tomb King stuff, and I have not, like, painted it or assembled it. So I have uh, six chariots, and I have finished three of them, fully painted, and they are looking hot. And then I also have ten knights, the um, guys on horseback, skeletal knights. And uh, if you can hear my children screaming in the background, they are perfectly fine. They are probably doing something like tickling each other. Uh, so... Where was I? Oh, so also I've got 10 skeletal knights and I've painted five of those. So half a unit of six for chariots, half a unit of 10 of skeletal knights. And that's basically all I've been doing. I picked a new basing scheme out for them. I bought that. And, uh, oh, guess what? Guess what, guys? You're going to be excited. You're going to be real excited. I finally decided to take the plunge and I'm getting into Caradron Overlords. That's right. Caradron Overlords. Uh, you know, on second thought, you're probably not as excited as I am, but I am very excited to start that army. I have been flirting, okay? I've been buying drinks for the dwarf in the corner for probably two years now. And, you know, he, we flirted back and forth. We, he sent me a picture of his little stubby and whatever. But finally, I've decided, you know what? Is it Dispossessed? Is it Fire Slayers? Is it Caradron Overlords? You know what? It's going to be Caradron Overlords. Um... They have more units than Fire Slayers, and I am in love with those freaking ships. I don't care if they're good. I don't care what they do. I'm going to have a fleet of freaking ships because they are beautiful. And even though I don't care for their battle line unit, the Arcanaut Company, uh, I don't care because those ships will finally be the thing that fills the void in my soul and I can complete my trek into this hobby. Probably not. Let's start this show. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. In this edition of the Tesseract mailbox, we have a letter from the one, the only, Grendel. And he is a, 
what's that? Yes, he's a badass cryptech on the Patreon. Yep, he's been supporting us from day one, and we love you, Grendel. Stay sexy. So, what does he have to say? He wrote into pimpcron at gmail.com, and let's see what he says. Hey, Pimpcron, I listened to your podcast and reached for the phone to call the hotline. <gasps> Just as I was going to hit the call button, I changed my mind and decided to write you instead. Motherfucker. <laughs> Sorry, I, I tickled myself with that one. I would have had to agree with you on your Want That or Want That Not segment this week. Sister Superior Amelia Novena is a cool model and a nod to the original artwork. I'm eager to see the rest of the line. I too will be collecting a new Sister's Army when they finally come out. I also like your Here's an Idea segment. I've been watching all the YouTubers who got an early copy of the Apoc set, the Apocalypse set and thought that a damage phase would actually balance regular 40k games out. They can even bring back the first turn deep strikes. With models only being removed at the end of the phase, those alpha strike units will still have the opponent's retaliation to deal with. I think it would help balance the game out. I hope you get to test out your theory and let us know the outcome. Lastly, I want to know... Oh, I'm sorry. I want to throw out an idea for you and see what you think. Since units get to overwatch units that are charging another unit. Since units get to overwatch units that are charging another unit. Since units get to overwatch units that are charging another unit. So I think what he's saying is, when you're charged, you get to overwatch. Since when you charge, you get to overwatch... What do you think about close combat units get a chance to make attacks on units falling back? You can have similar rules to Overwatch, like they only hit on sixes, can't strike if they are still engaged by another unit, and only those models that started in range may make the attack. I think it would be a nice addition to the rules and help out those close combat units that never seem to get a break. What do you think? I guess that's enough for today. Keep on making the great content and I will keep listening. Grendel. P.S. I am still waiting for you to teach my dog some tricks. <laughs> so, uh, well, alright, there's a lot to unpack here. So, first of all, yeah, Sister Superior, Amelia, Novena, Hydrochloric Acid, whatever her name is, is awesome. I love that model. And I still stand behind that. One week later, that, that stands the test of time. One week later, I still agree. And... The here's a, so the epoch damage at the end of the turn. I completely agree as well. I think I honestly think, besides the slight amount of bookkeeping, it would be a great addition to regular 40k. Have not got a chance to try it out yet. Uh, like I say, this time of year, I'm I'm crazy uh, with work, but um, when we get a chance, I will definitely want to try that try that out. And just James is always ready to try something new and experiment with the rules with me. So we'll see how that goes. If we do it or when we do it. I will put it on the the podcast for you. And he also says he wants to throw out this idea of basically a reverse Overwatch. So, if somebody is trying to withdraw from combat, you know, retreat, then the other close combat unit that is in combat with them should be able to be, basically make attacks of opportunity hidden on sixes. Just like the shooting units get to Overwatch on sixes when a melee unit is charging them. And of course he puts all the other stipulations in. So they, they can't be engaged with another unit. And blah blah blah. Uh, I think. I honestly think that is one of the single best ideas. I have heard for an addition to 8th edition. And 
I love it. I ran it by just James the other day, and he loved it. And I honestly don't see a downside to it. Because melee armies... Now, admittedly, I think melee armies are the best... Maybe the best they've ever been in 8th edition compared to other editions. They still clearly... I mean, if you got to charge across a room and a dude is shooting a full automatic rifle at you... I mean, it's, stuff's not in your favor. I mean, you could have a chainsaw in your hands. You could have, you know, wolverine claws. You could be however good at close combat as you want. But if he's literally shooting at you from a distance, you're not going to get far. And that's basically how this, this game kind of boils down to. Um, in the past, I think previous editions were more like 70-30 shooting to melee. And I honestly think it's more like a 60-40 now. Mm, 60-40, maybe 55-45, to 45, something like that. Um, I honestly do think this is the most balanced it's been. But I 100% agree with the Attack of Opportunity, which is what it could be called, and I'm going to trademark that right now before GW gets their hands on it. And, uh, you know, I believe, um, I believe like, uh, in D&D, I think they do that. When you're trying to, you know, withdraw from combat, they can attack you before you leave, potentially. And, um, you know, anything that will help uh, balance between ranged and melee, I think is an excellent idea. And this is simple, it's elegant, it would be extremely easy to implement, it would not affect any data slates whatsoever. And I think it's the perfect addition, honestly. Similar... Actually, this is better, but this is similar to my idea of making all Dreadnoughts characters as a quick and simple fix for making them more durable and all of that, because they're supposed to be ancient warriors anyway, so they should be characters. But uh, but this is even better, because this seamlessly slots in. It could be an FAQ, it could be whatever, and it affects all units equally. 100% agree with you, Grendel. It's a great idea. Well, I think that's about it. Um, I I do have such a heavy heart, though, that you did not call the hotline. It, it saddens me. I'm quite upset. But you know what? I'll get over it. And once again, I, I greatly appreciate you being a Patreon patron. And please write in whenever you get a chance, good sir. Toodles. Now, here's an idea. We here at the Pimpcron Warhammer Podcast love to try new things. We are very experimental, and I'm not positive that the history of the um, the Dark Eldar, that whole thing panned out well enough. Uh, maybe partially it's my fault for the implementation of it, or partially it's just something you're not interested in. The feedback I generally got was that you guys weren't super interested in the product line history, regardless of how much I am interested in it. So, I was thinking that it may interest you if we started a new segment where we actually focused on a unit or a battle or a short story or something that is in the lore of Warhammer or Age of Sigmar or um, uh, Warhammer fantasy battles. And we could just, you know, kind of talk about that and, and see something that really strikes our fancy. So if this is popular, then I will continue and we will actually record a new entrance for it. I've been meaning to record all of those old entrances anyway with the guy that I had do that. So, you know, higher def, better quality, whatever. So, 
let's start out with one of the bat shit craziest units I've ever heard my entire life. And it's from one of my very favorite armies called the Tomb Kings. And what am I talking about here? I'm talking about the Screaming Skull Catapults. And this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't like the model that much. I don't really understand how you can shoot catapult the skulls at something. I have the same exact questions about the um, skull cannon for um, corn. Like, you're, you're just literally shooting skulls? I don't understand. Do you know how fragile and hollow a human skull is? I mean, it, a cannonball, it is not. So, I'm sure it's imbued with some sort of magic or something like that. But these Screaming Skull Catapults are actually pretty metal. So, just, just take a trip down memory lane, just for a couple minutes, and let's read about the Screaming Skull Catapults. So the catapults of a Tomb King's Eternal Army are akin to the stone throwers of other races, but instead of flinging rocks at the foe, they throw volleys of flaming skulls. That's right, just like your favorite 80s metal album cover, they throw flaming skulls. The Lich Priests cast terrible curses upon every one of these skulls, enchanting them so they scream hideously as they are hurled through the air, rising to a deafening crescendo just before they strike their target. These are the very death screams of the Skull's former owners, the wailing shrieks of those slaughtered on the field of battle, and the agonized cries of prisoners captured at the moment of their execution. Many battle-hardened warriors are driven to the edge of insanity by the blood-curdling sound. This horrific ammunition bursts into hellish ethereal flames when it is launched, and as the Skulls arc through the air, they blaze an eerie trail of green fire behind them. Most of these skulls explode on impact, sending fragments of splintered bone in all directions and engulfing those nearby in a wash of balefire. Hmm, that sounds fun. Others smash into their target with horrifying force. Infernal flames spilling out of empty eye sockets as the skulls chew through armor and flesh alike? Wait, the skulls chew through? This just gets weirder and weirder. Okay, let's keep going. Every Screaming Skull catapult is crewed by a trio of skeleton warriors. They load and fire their war machines with silent efficiency, unperturbed by the dreadful sound of their ammunition. The artisans of ancient Nehekara, I'm probably murdering that, Nehekara, wrought Screaming Skull catapults into the very, Im into the very image of destruction. The catapult's arms are shaped to resemble twisted bones, and their cradles were fashioned into vast skeletal claws. The so-called hands of death. The chassis of the catapults are carved to resemble the animal remains of a vicious desert predator, and sprouting from their spines are great towers of skulls. These are the remains of enemy champions nailed to the mast of the catapult as grisly trophies. There, they wail in perpetual torment until plucked from their fastenings and fired at the enemy. Even the stoutest heart trembles with fear, knowing that such a fate awaits them should they fall against the Tomb Kings. So, this is just nuts. Okay, let's, let's keep going. We're almost done. King Behadesh of Zandri was... Ooh, Zandri dust. That's where we get that word from. Zandri was the inventor of the Screaming Skull Catapult, and he ordered many to be built during his reign. He used these extensively in many wars, and most famously to de defeat the rulers of Araby, who re rebelled against him. Rebelled against him. I'm an idiot. 
He, <laughs> these treacherous kings refused to submit to Behadesh's will, but when their armies were bombarded by the skulls of their own comrades, they fled and their cities burned. Hmm. At every battle's end, the catapult crews scoured the battlefield for the bodies of slain foes, decapitating any they found and carrying the severed heads back to be cursed by Zandri's lich priests. However, such was not the fate for the rebel kings. Behadish decreed that these traitors were to be mummified alive and strapped atop his catapults so that they could watch the destruction of their cities firsthand. Even now... Many centuries later, some catapults still have withered corpses bound to their timbers. Whether these are the same renegades that opposed Behadesh or the remains of other tormented souls has long been forgotten. Occasionally a muffled sound, as faint as the rustling of dried parchment, ushers from their cadaverous lips begging for mercy. However, the skeletal crews are oblivious to their pleas, and even if they were not, they could not be heard over the banshee wailing of their ensorcelled ammunition. Wow. Just wow. You know, they say Warhammer 40k is the grimdark, but this is pretty damn dark. Um... Like I said, I don't really care for the models. The models should have been updated at some point. Uh, they're they're very very dated, but I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna make uh, cursed skulls and ammunition in warfare, you might as well go all out with it, right? You, you should just just you know pedal to the metal. So, uh, I like the fact that they actually they're like, oh, I heard you like skulls. Well, I put skulls on your skulls because they literally carve this to be like beasts skeletons and then make the thing where you put the skulls in that little cup part into giant claws that are skeletal i mean you've got skeletons throwing skulls which by the way comes from skeletons <laughs> into this thing which is just skeletal hands attached to a skeletal skeleton and then has these big posts Wrapped in skeletons. <laughs> anyway, uh, don't care for the model, don't care for the unit, but that is a badass backstory for a unit. So, bravo, GW. That was pretty entertaining. Let me know if you were entertained by messaging me on pimpcron at gmail.com or facebook.com slash pimpcron. And if this was interesting to you, we would be exploring many more battles and units and everything from all across Age of Sigmar 40k or Warhammer Fantasy Battles. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimpcron. And now it's time for Real Talk with the Pimpcron. And tonight I wanted to discuss something that I was talking over with someone else the other day. And they asked me, Pimpcron? And I said, yes. And they said, you're parked in my parking space. And I go, oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. It was a different conversation, different different conversation. Okay, so this person said Pimpcron, and I said yes. And they said, hey. I said, how's it going? Nope, nope, nope. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop this shtick now. So they said, how on earth do you choose a paint scheme for an army if you're making a fluff chapter? So that's a very interesting question, and... There is no real straight answer for that, but you know what? I will give you guidelines because I've done it for almost every single one of my chapters of every army that I have. So, essentially, there's only one army that I have actually painted a real chapter color from the lore, and that would be my Celestial Lions. 
every single other person or faction that I've done, whether it be orcs or tyranids or gene stealers or space wolves or necrons or guard or anything, I never, ever, ever use a set chapter. I like to make my own and my own backstory, my own lore. So the first thing, uh, you kind of have to do this backwards. You have to reverse engineer this. And what I mean by that is, is if you, you have to pick colors that you like, obviously, colors that go well together, obviously. Ideally, you want to pick three colors. And the reason for that is, is you usually, on every single model, ignoring skin tones and whatnot, you will have a main color, and then you will have a contrast color that complements that. Then you will have a spot color, which is kind of like the highlight area. So let's just pick a... Um, Let's pick something that you all be familiar with. Let's pick a guardsman, Acadian guardsman model. You realize that, you know, their cloth is one color. It's a main color. Then their shoulder pads and helmets are often another color, which would be your secondary color. And oftentimes their las guns are also that, that secondary color. And then usually they have a spot color of something, whether it be a little emblem on their shoulder pads or it be a medal they've earned, or it be, you know, the lens of a commissar's eye will be a certain color. And, um, you know, getting into all of that color theory of actually choosing the colors is a huge deal, and I am not a professional at it. I need to get uh, uh, someone like Tony Gallagher on here to uh, discuss that. But that's not really the aim for this segment anyway. The point is, is you want to pick three colors, a primary color, a secondary color, and then a, like a spot color. And then you have to be prepared to paint those three colors until you die. Because when you're starting a new army, you have to make sure it is a color that you like to paint. It's a color that's easy to paint. And it's not going to give you headaches down the road when you're painting 200 models of the same color scheme. So I will take you down the road of this. First of all, the good news is, is that if you're making your own chapter or something of that nature, it's dynasty, clan, whatever, you get to pick whatever color you like. So keep in mind that sometimes you will have a flesh tone in there and you really don't want that to clash. Um, you know, if you're doing orcs, most people, 99% of people, unless you're just James, do orcs green. Uh, <laughs> just James is orcs or orange skinned, but whatever. Um... So, and you know, of course, humans will be somewhere between peach and brown somewhere in there. And you got to make sure that that's not something that's going to clash. So, for instance, doing a skin-colored main color for your guardsman is probably a bad idea because you're also going to have skin color on their face and hands if you're talking about that Cadian model we already discussed. And then that's going to clash. It's going to just all wash out. It's all going to look the same. It's going to be... Think about that. Think about if you took like a brown skin color as, you know, the helmet and shoulder pads and gun, and you took like a uh, pinker, like a Caucasian skin color for the main color, and then you got to go ahead and pick a skin color for your people. What are you going to do? Now, you could paint them like Andorians. You could give them blue skin and white hair. That would be cool. Love Andorians. But that's not usually what you do. So... Pick a color that is complementary with your skin color of your people that you're going to be painting and pick those three colors that you want, whatever pleases you, and then devise a way to paint them as simply as possible. Now, I am a tabletop painter. I have some skill in that. You know, I, I can paint things that look decent. 
Um, but I am not a, you know, uh, Tony Gallagher or Thomas Ryder or somebody like that. So all I do is I make sure that my things are easy to paint and enjoyable to paint. If you pick some sort of ridiculous paint scheme that, uh, like, let's say, for instance, Just James, I keep bringing him up. I don't know why I'm picking on him. He decided to paint his towel in Brett the Hitman heart colors, which are pink, black, and white. But he chose to mix his pink. And then he never, I've told the story before, you've probably heard it. He never could find that exact color pink again. So if you look at his towel army, it's a, a cornucopia of different pinks. Some redder, some whiter, some, you know, rosier, whatever, but not some more bubblegum. But they're just not all the same and it drives him nuts. So you got to make sure that if you're doing something in on one model, your test model, make sure it's very easily reproducible. That's just common sense. So for instance, let's, let's just do this. For my Tyranids, I struggled with a paint scheme for a really long time because I wanted to do something really ornate and something really cool because there's so many animals in the animal kingdom, like different frogs or snakes or whatever, that have such cool spots and speckles and all that on their on their um shells but the problem is is if you're going to paint 200 gaunts or in my case 100 gene stealers you really just cannot take the time to paint all those speckles and all that nonsense so what i do and this is cheesy i know but it actually does not look bad on the tabletop my colors for them is black blue and light blue and like a sky blue and a macrag um, blue, more or less. And uh, what I do is I prime the whole thing black because I'm a cheater. And then my skin's already black, right, for my Tyranids. Then I paint all, you know, all the carapace colors and all that, that macrag um, blue. And then all of the, you know, those little uh, lined areas, those like uh, slits in their arms and legs and joints with all the little mesh lines on them. All of those, I very carefully paint the light blue, the sky blue. And I think it's Sotek blue or something like that. And then you're saying, well, gee, you've just got a black primed model and you've got, of course, I do, you know, the eyes and tongue and whatnot. But then you're like, well, you've just got this thing here and it doesn't look like anything, you know? It's just primed black. It's a flat black model with some paint on it. Well, remember how I said I like to cheat? Well, the easiest way to paint a bunch of freaking models is you allow your clear coat to be part of the paint. So, in other words, I really like the wet look of Alien from the Alien movies. And I noticed that clear coat makes all of your colors much richer and more vibrant when you clear coat them. So, that is the only army that I use gloss clear coat on. And when I spray paint those the gloss clear coat, not only do they look wet, but that dull black primer really comes alive. It's shiny. It looks so vibrant. It's not dull anymore like primer is. It's um, And it's a serious, serious cheat. It's a serious hack. But you know what? I like the look of it. It's got an interesting contrast. The main color, I guess you'd say, is black, depending on the model. Um, their skin is black. Their shell is that McCrag blue. And then the highlights... Um, uh, well, I also cheat on that. There's a, there's a little bit of purple in there for tiny, tiny details like their tongues are purple and whatnot. But ignore me. Anyway, uh, let's go to another one of my armies. Um, let's say my Necrons, right? Dr prime the whole thing black. 
dry brush it all, ledge belcher, then wash it twice with the um, uh, Daruchi Violet, I think it's called, the purple wash. And then, of course, I have a um, Nagroth Knight, which is the dark purple I do for the shoulder pads. And then, of course, I use Retributor Armor for the gold trim on their spines and on their shoulder pads. And, um, I mean, that's basically it. I do some other stuff. But, uh, once again, a super, super easy color scheme. I think it looks neat, it looks unique, and it's very easy to pull off. Which are all very important things for when you're making your own chapter. Now, another thing that you got to really worry about when you're picking your colors and your technique is that if you have an army, like Tyranids are a bad example because, you know, a big Tyranid is not that much different to paint than a little Tyranid. They both have carapace, they both have skin, they both have teeth. It's kind of it's the same thing, just on a larger scale. But if you're relying on washes, like I do for my Necrons, you got to be really careful about your vehicles. And what I mean by that is, let's say that you're doing Space Marines, okay? Um, actually, you know what? I have another example for this. My Celestial Lions ran into this exact issue. So my Celestial Lions, I spray Retributor Gold, and then I just Seraph and Sepium. Like, I literally just wash them once, and and then clear coat them, and, and do their blue and all that uh, for their shoulder pads. But the problem is, is big, uh, square, flat surfaces like a Rhino does not take wash well. It wants to pool up, it wants to be darker and splotchy and all of that, which is the same thing people have been warning you about for the contrast paints, is that they don't do well in big, flat surfaces. So, the problem with that is, is that I can you know, make my infantry look a certain way and my dreadnoughts and all that because I can easily wash that. Even the dreadnoughts are not, you know, such big flat surfaces that you can't wash it. But when I get to like a rhino or a land raider, it's got so many big flat surfaces. So the way I get around that is that I very, very lightly... Okay, let me take a step back. Obviously, my celestial lions are that retributor gold and then seraph and sepia. So they are a darker gold. I can't just spray retributor gold on my rhino or my land raider and call it a day because it's going to look brighter than all of my troops. And obviously I want it all to match. So I painted myself a little bit into a corner there. Uh, that was not a pun. <laughs> and and uh, so what I ended up doing is I ended up priming the vehicles black and then dry brushing retributor armor on at uh, retributor gold and that actually had the desired effect of course you know anytime here's that paint theory again anytime that you pro paint something over a base color it changes how that color reacts so in other words if i'm going to paint yellow over a black primer it's going to look darker and possibly a little greener than if i'm going to paint yellow over a white primer it will be brighter and more yellow so, because even though it seems counterintuitive, the undercover, the base coat will somewhat shine through and either diminish or brighten the color. So, in order to get my darker color for the gold, what I was able to do is prime that black rather than retributor gold, and then dry brush the retributor gold paint over that, and it actually worked pretty well. Um, it may be one shade different, but it's so close that I was like, ah, it's good enough. Um, 
Now, of course, you don't have any of these issues if you're using the GW chapters because they literally have so many guides on how to paint ultramarines, how to paint salamanders, or how to paint whatever you want. And um, so, you know, they've already figured all that out for you. Clearly, they're not going to ask you to um, wash an entire vehicle because they themselves know. I mean, Duncan would, you know, freak out because you can't wash a big flat surface. The last thing that I want to mention is that the, the third part of this is not only that you want to pick three colors that look good with your skin tones, you also want to pick colors and a technique that will be very easily, uh, very easy to replicate and will save you time. But you also want to think about the lore behind your army uh, when you're doing this, because obviously camouflage does play some part in it. Um, there used to be in those Imperial Guard uh, codexes, I haven't even looked to see if it's in the new one, all the different colors of the different chapters. And they used to have, what they would basically do is have an entire sheet of all these circles. And in every circle was a little paint job. And it was like, you know, different, weird different types of camouflage shapes and colors and color schemes and all that. And I used to just love to stare at them and picture what models would look like, you know, painted to those schemes. And, um, but a lot of times they would have little backstories like, oh, well, this is, you know, snow camouflage, or this is, you know, uh, the molten lava fields camouflage or whatever. Well, when you are painting your models, you will want to, number one, think about what do they want to portray? Because if you think about it, like, let's take the modern military, for example, modern military is in camouflage. Why is that? They want to portray to the enemy, well, as little as possible, because it's freaking camouflage. They don't want to portray anything to the enemy. They don't want the enemy to see them, and that's the whole point. So, for the ins for instance, my um, dynasty of Necrons, uh, you know, I wanted them to have a royal and regal and, well, pimped out look. And that's why they're gold and purple. I mean, that's, that's kind of self-explanatory. Um... As for my Tyranids, I wanted them to um, actually, they developed as a splinter fleet on a world that had no sun or the sun was very dim or whatever. So the reason why I picked their color schemes is that if you if picture, let's say, a Carnifex, the skin of the Carnifex is a lot of what you're going to see if it's coming at you. And that will be black. It will be harder to see in, um, in real life when it's coming at you. But all of the other Carnifexes can easily see each other from behind because their shells are colored. Now, they're not brightly colored, but they're still colored. So, um, and actually, uh, this is probably terribly named, but um, my high fleet's called Nocturnus because, you know, because of reasons, people. Don't don't write me up about that. And, uh, but that's, that's exactly what my point is. And... Not only do you have to worry about what your army wants to portray to the enemy, so, you know, are you trying to be stealthy? Are you trying to give off a, a, a pimpy royal vibe? Are you trying to show how pure white is the driven snow you are, or how evil and menacing you are with your blood colors and your black and your lava? Um, you have to decide what exactly that you're going to uh, look like and how you want to portray yourself to the enemy. 
But you also, because we're talking about painting here, you want to think about what your basing scheme is going to be while you're painting. Because just like we talk about with our fleshy spots, you don't want to pick a color scheme that will clash with your terrain on your base. Because whatever color you're doing on your base is hopefully going to represent where your army is from, their home planet, where they usually fight, blah blah blah. Valhallans will probably have snow, Space Wolves will probably have snow, uh, Talarn will probably have desert, You, I think you get the point. And you really don't want to, for instance, have colors that will clash with desert if you're doing Talarn. You don't want to do, um, you know, colors that will clash with snow if, uh, picture this, picture a Valhallan in all white, like, hat, you know, their their big tunic they wear, whatever that's called, the big trench coat, that's all white. Their boots are white, their base is white, their gun is white, and you got a spot color of pink or brown for the skin. Okay, well, how freaking boring is that? People will be like, oh, did you just prime that white? <laughs> because it's all going to look the same. Now, Valhallans are traditionally gray, and gray works great with white because it's on the same color palette, white, blue, gray, it's all on that cool palette. So... That is why they do that. Um, of course, that's up to you. But there's a lot to consider when you are picking a color scheme. And in reiteration, you want it to be easy to replicate. You want it to match or at least complement each other, those three main colors. You want it to make sense for your lore and how your army acts. And you also want it to be complementary with your basing color, which... You know, um, if you're going for the regular basing color, a lot of people do, like just that sand with some little clumps of grass or whatever. Um, if you're like, you know, chapter generic or whatever, it's just the thumbs up as their symbol. Sure. Okay. Just just do that. And that's pretty harmless. Kind of like how black pants go with nearly every color except for dark blue. Yeah, uh, that's that basing scheme basically goes with pretty much every color except for uh, we got sand all over our armor. Uh, chapter, whatever, whatever they are. So I hope this gave you something to think about because, you know, there's nothing worse than starting out an army. And I've done this before. You start out an army, you pick one model. And I'm telling you, I agonized over my Tyranid paint schemes for <laughs> pretty much a year. I had, um, actually, I still have a couple gene stealers in a bucket, and there's like five different paint schemes. I was going to do like a bumblebee theme. I was going to do like a lava theme. And eventually, uh, one of those five schemes was my Nocturnus theme, and I ended up going with it because I like them being like, a, like, you know, scary horror monsters. Like they're creeping in the shadows. Anyway, there is a lot to think about, and you don't want to start painting, um, you know, something that looks great on one single infantry model as your test model may not translate to a giant model or to a big, fat, flat paneled model like a Land Raider. Um, you know, it may not transfer to a flyer. You have to look at your entire army and realize how easy it will be and what will go with what. So... I hope I'm not overcomplicating this, but honestly, these are all the three main points that I use when determining what my color schemes will be for my new armies. And, like, for instance, the Tomb Kings is my latest army that I have been painting, and um, I guess I'm kind of droning on here, but I chose white, sky blue, and hot pink. And you think that would be terrible because I was actually kind of doing it as a joke. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to just make this crazy. And I was shocked at how good it actually comes out. Because 
I use the um, uh, Ushabti, I think it's Ushabti bone or whatever, that, you know, that yellowish tan color, and then I wash it with Seraphine Sepia. And it's got like an orangish white tint to it. And then for some reason that complements so well with the um, blue, pink, and white. And then I use um, uh, Brass Scorpion, or I'm sorry, Screaming Bell uh, for the metal. So when I did this, I didn't really think about the basing at all. And I was thinking, now I'm going about basing now, and I'm going, ah, geez, okay, well, I can't use sand. I can't just use regular sand. These Tomb Kings are supposed to be in the desert, but I can't just use sand because they already have that cream color on them. Their bone is not bright white. It's like a it's like a sand color almost. So that doesn't work well. But you know what I found out does work well? I bought tinted sand and um it's like a it's like a brown, it's like a chocolate brown color. It's um maybe mauve is the word. I I'm I'm not great with names of colors, but it's like almost has a hint to of red to it, but it's a brown. And I'm basing all my bases like that. And the black of the base shines through the sand even after it's glued. Because remember, your base color shines through your other layers. And it actually comes off really nice. They uh, they have a brownish sand color that really does well to kind of tone down the whole model. Um, it doesn't look like dirt per se, but it doesn't look like your traditional desert sand. And I'm sure I'm going to come up with a uh, a narrative reason. You know, they come from the ash wastes or whatever. Because it kind of looks ashy. But the point is, is that I chose the color scheme before I thought about the basing. And then I had to scramble to figure out how to do the basing because it was kind of clashing with the sand color that I wanted to do. But that has a happy ending because I'm really happy with how it turned out. So I'm going to stop talking in your ear now. As always, I appreciate you listening. And I am going to uh, turn off this mic.